What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And before we get started, just want to say first off, hope you all had an amazing Thanksgiving, if that's your thing, and you celebrate it and all that. I've been dealing with some craziness uh, at my apartment complex. And if you follow me on Instagram and Twitter, which you should, you know the craziness that I've been dealing with. But anyways, before I introduce the guest, real quick, real quick. So check it out. Some of you are listening to this episode early. And that is because we just started a new thing over on Substack that if you become a paid subscriber, it's for the low, low price of $5 a month. You get the episodes early. All right. So head on over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. I'll link it down in the description. I'm just going to leave it there. It'll be in all the episodes, but you will get all of the episodes early. And we have so many amazing upcoming guests coming on. Will Store is coming back on. Megan Dom is coming back on. Bridget Fetisy is coming on pretty soon. And so many other incredible authors. So make sure that you sign up over at therewiredsoul.substack.com so you can get access to the episodes early. I'm working on some other perks and benefits and all that, and it just helps support the podcast because this is one of the things I'm doing with most of my time, and I've been doing it for free. My son just got his braces on today, so any support is greatly appreciated. All right, but anyways, today's guest is Dr. David Robert Grimes, and we're going to be talking about his amazing new book, Good Thinking. Uh, over in the UK, where he is based, the book is called The Irrational Ape. Some of you know they do different titles in different countries, but anyways, anyways, this book is on one of my favorite topics, which is good thinking, better thinking, because as you all know, I, I discuss a lot and I write a lot about how irrational we are, the biases we have. And one of the reasons I love this book so much is I read so many books on this. And this book actually came out around the same time as Steven Pinker's new book, Rationality. And Steven Pinker's new book, it got so much publicity, so much controversy, so many things. And I was like, this book is just like every other book on this topic. But then I picked up David's book and I was like, oh my God, like this book is just amazing. In my personal opinion, it's way better than Steven Pinker's book. I actually tell David that in this interview and it's such a good book. So David, uh, as you'll hear in our conversation, he's a physicist by training, but he has been, you know, working on, uh, you know, dealing with people who are like anti-vaxxers, science deniers, and all these other things uh, for years now. And it's something that he's passionate about. And he even debated, which he regrets now, uh, he even debated Andrew Wakefield, who, if you don't know, is the person who came up with the, the, the theory of vaccines leading to autism, which has been debunked. It was debunked years ago and even retracted from the Lancet and it's still, you know, having its lasting effects to this day. But anyways, David is such a cool, knowledgeable guy and he's actually, you know, very like charismatic and personable. And I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. So in this conversation, you'll, you'll hear us talking about, you know, different ways to combat bad thinking uh, so we can address different biases that can lead us to, you know, science denial. I also ask him about, you know, how do we ask questions without being too skeptical and, you know, opening our mind enough, but not enough to lead us into these crazy conspiratorial rabbit holes and all that. And David, he, he has some great answers and uh, strategies for all this so you can become a better thinker. Absolutely love this book. So make sure you head down to the description. Uh, make sure you're following David over on Twitter and grab a copy of his book. I will link it down in the description below. It is a must read if you want to become a better thinker. All right. But before we get started, again, if you're not yet, Make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, any announcements. I'm working on a brand new book, so I'm trying to keep you all updated. I write a ton uh, about different topics over on my Substack, and I tweet about them and everything like that. And speaking of Substack, make sure you head over there and subscribe so you get these episodes early. All right. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following the podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. David Robert Grimes about his brand new book, Good Thinking.
All right. Hello, David. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I am fantastic. I loved your amazing book that we're going to be talking about, Good Thinking. So for those of my audience who have yet to meet you, can you kind of give us a little bit of your background and the type of work that you do? Sure. I, uh, I can try anyway. So <laughs> I am a physicist by training, but I've been working mainly in cancer research and health science for the past 10 years. I'm also an author. I write for different publications, Scientific American, The Guardian, The Observer, sometimes The New York Times, things like that. And obviously, um, I had my first book out a while ago, which has two titles, which confuses everyone. Yeah. It's Good Thinking in America, but in Europe, it's called The Irrational Ape. It's the same book. I've had people go, hey, I bought these two books. They're very similar. I'm like, they're, they're, they're pretty much the same book. Yeah. But yeah. obviously, tailored for an American audience, one of them, and, you know, tailored the opposite way, either way. That point of confusion has come up a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Like, I, 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 with so many authors coming on, I've noticed that. And at some point, I'm going to research and see, like, what the rules are and why they have to, like, I, change I think those. it's marketing. Yeah, I mean, and, and you'd be surprised how little input authors have. You have some. You could probably stomp your feet a bit. But the people mm -hmm. who do that stuff usually know the market better than you. And they've yeah. bought the rights to that book and they want to sell it. I yeah. also would say, I think 43% of Americans don't believe in evolution. So, I mean, you know, then you'd have to get the hard sell of convincing people that apes ah. is about humans. I don't know if that factored into the calculus. Huh. That's interesting. But, I mean, I like to tell people it did just to get them outraged and then tell them, well, I'm not sure if it's true and then see the reaction. Yeah. So, so, you know, you touched on something great there. 43% of Americans not believing in evolution. So here's, here's what I'm, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about. I've had a lot of authors on who write similar books and I want to talk in a second about how your book's different. Cause I read so many books on this because I got interested in this topic of good thinking and just biases and fallacies and just how to monitor this stuff better. I, I, I became interested when I realized how irrational I was, how irrational other people are. But anyways, with your background in like physics and you've been doing cancer research, like what got you interested in this, right? Like you've debated people, you've talked about this, you've written about it. Why are you interested in us becoming better thinkers? But you see, I think the, the, the thing that got me into science is about what can you do that makes the most impact to the most people? And mm. you only have a certain amount of years on this planet. And we are all motivated by different things. And I, I, I guess understanding the world around us and, and also that that's one motivation, but actually putting policies in place that make us more likely to survive and to thrive and, and, and to live the best possible lives we can. And science to the national secretary that now I should give my background as well. I spent a lot of time in theater and music and things like that. Mm -hmm. So debating and discussing and, and doing outreach work kind of came naturally, maybe more so to me than some of my scientific peers, mm -hmm. because that was almost my career. I remember I was, I was almost going to be an actor and then I said, no, I'm going to try the science thing for a while, see how, how it goes on. But the fundamental motivation has always been the same. It's like, look, you want to, you want to communicate how much better things could be and give people guidelines and help and, and including ourselves. You pointed out there when you said there, you know, you could express how irrational you can be. We're all like that. Mm -hmm. But learning to identify that and then fill those flaws in our cognitive mesh, that's that's just so important. And when I started doing science writing, I started coming up against conspiracy theorists about very yeah. things that I didn't think should have been controversial. And then I started identifying the kind of logical flaws that were that people made in these arguments. And then sometimes I made myself and mm -hmm. that you'd see, and then it, it started to be a compendium of that. And I guess that was the motivation in a roundabout way. Yeah. You know, the, the question that always comes up in my head, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm regularly reading like multiple books at a time. And I always try to have one of these books in my rotation, just as a reminder, like, Hey, Chris, keep an eye out, you know, and like with reading these books, I got to be skeptical, but also trust. And, you know, you talk about skepticism in the book. And here's the question that always comes up in my mind. And since you talked with conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists, you tried not to debate too many of them. Uh, I want to talk about Andrew Wakefield in a little oh, bit. God. That was an interesting yeah. part of your book. But here's a question that I always have is, do you think that people value the truth enough, right? Because when we look at the, the current state of the world and all of the polarization, right? And we know, you probably know better than most, that if I walk up to a conspiracy theorist and say, hey, here's the facts about the COVID vaccine, right? Or here's the facts about the earth being round. Like, 
it doesn't matter, right? So when, when writing these books and when trying to uh, teach people how to be better thinkers, the question I always ask is, do people even care about the truth or does like tribalism trump that truth and the self-deception and all those right. things going on? Trump was a loaded word to use there, wasn't it? <laughs> and I, right. and no, it it's an excellent question, right? And I, I, I'm not a big choir preacher. I started, when I started dabbling in self-speakation a decade ago, there was a satisfaction. I remember getting like, you know, people liking your post, but people that already agreed with everything you said. Yeah. And I remember very quickly going, that's not the audience I need to reach. Exactly. That's not the people. Now, you mentioned polarization. This is important. I think we also need to realize that the world is divided and is, and social media has perhaps massively increased that as I, as I would argue, but I think the vast majority of people are far more reasonable than the binary extrema that you usually get on most topics online. Mm -hmm. Dominant voices tend to go towards extremes and people that are floating in the middle, well, they don't get that. I, I had this football pitch, um, analogy for, for, I was, when I used to write pieces for, and I still do it actually for, for different newspapers. There's 15% of the audience, these, these figures are made up, but I think roughly illustrative and, and they are drawn from a, a source. So I'm, I'm, I'm smoothing them a bit. 15% of people are already on your side and no matter what you do, they're, they're not going to change their mind. Even if you wrote mm -hmm. the worst piece ever, 15% yeah. of people are dead set against it. They'll never change their mind. They're super aggressive. They're, they're going to write nasty comments all over it. And there's 70% of people in the middle that you can reach and you can mm. nudge them one direction down the field or the other. If your piece is good, you'll nudge them. You'll probably never hear them. And showering you with praise or, 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 or being even loud about it. But if you're talking about something like vaccine hesitancy, if I have convinced someone, you know, like they heard something scary about vaccines and I've shown them that's maybe not true mm -hmm. and they're more likely to get vaccinated, that's a, that's a silent victory. And yeah. I really believe, and, and I wouldn't have written this book otherwise, I really believe the vast majority of people are not at those extremes. The vast majority of us on different topics that maybe on some topics were extreme, but in most things we're not, we're floating somewhere in, in that middle. And that's where you can have a lot of impact. That's where yeah. conversations matter. That's where, because I do think most people are really smart. I mean, I, I know it's, it's, it's said in kind of empty way, but I think people are far more intelligent, far more capable than maybe the grim prognosis uh, that we sometimes give the place. You got to remember the old adage about empty vessels making the most noise. Yeah. It's particularly true online. Yeah. I mean, um, there's never been someone that had a hot take that was, you know, too dumb not to tweet. Um, <laughs> and I think that's distorted our perception of things because that, that, that brings our focus on it. It is a problem. And I, I, I was there and I write about it at length. The polarization is, is a real problem. But the, the solution is not to kind of fade into apathy or give up on it. The solution is to realize that picking our battles matters. So yeah. if you have a dyed in the wool um, super racist, anti-vaxxer kind of person who's not going to listen to you. Yeah, you're, you're probably wasting your time. But your cousin who's a bit afraid and has heard some scary things, having a conversation, and I, I say conversation rather than debate. I, I, I think I give my opinions on debate in the book a little bit. I don't no. think debate is as useful, and we might get onto that in a while, as people think it is. Discussion is important. Because mm -hmm. in the end, you never change anyone else's mind. You simply give them the tools and the freedom to do so. And no one ever changes yours. Yeah. They give you the tools and freedom to do so. Um, but the idea that you can win a conversation is certainly a misguided one. And it comes from that, um, I mean, I used to debate a lot. Um, I, I'm a rhetoric, and it, usually debate will reward the person who is uh, most devious in their rhetoric. Yeah. And I have won a few debates in my time as a debater doing that. Um, that is not necessarily the arbiter of how we should compare ideas, but that's, we'll probably get onto that in a while. So I'm getting ahead of myself yeah. on that rant. No, like, uh, everything you just said, like, that's, that's something else I need to remember. Cause I get very cynical, but like, I, I try to remember, uh, you know, a great book was from, uh, you know, um, Chris Bale. He's, uh, the, the director of the Duke polarization lab. And he talks about in his book about how the loudest voices are the most extreme voices. But like you said, there's a lot of people in that middle that are very silent, right. And they're people questioning things. I try to remember that. And, you know, a great example is just over the weekend, um, you know, somebody from the audience, they sent me a private message on Instagram, just asking my thoughts, like, Hey, do you think this is true? Like, where can I look for, you know, different opinions and stuff like that? Because those people aren't vocal. And I try to remember that there are silent people out there who are questioning things and not to believe in stuff, but it's hard to remember when you're just like scrolling through Twitter or looking at the replies. And it's just like this tribe sitting there, just like 
rooting. It's that 15% you talk about. That Everyone is angry all the time. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Like, um, and I, it is true. The world is more polarized and that is undeniably true. And there's reasons for that. We might, we might even get into some today, but it's very easy to almost give up and spare or, or to feel you have to join. And nuance has kind of died. And particularly yeah. online discussions, particularly whether it's Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, or whatever you do yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people are often playing to their own crowd. Like yeah. you get more extreme and, and you create these echo chambers of where, where there's a conformity of opinion that, that moves towards the, the, the loudest voice again. And people, people who maybe have a slightly divergent opinion would become afraid to express that or, you know, maybe have better things to do. Yeah. Let's face it, people who are always online are probably not doing much else. Yeah. Um, most of us have to do other stuff occasionally. Um, and, and there's all sorts of factors, but yes, it is, it's staggering. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is. And yeah. I, there's a whole idea like they, they, I've sometimes called the, the law of bullshit asymmetry. It's a lot more effort to refute something that is incorrect or, or propagandistic or, mm. you know, disinformation than it actually is to create it in the first place. Yeah. You want to go and spread some rumors, create some myths. That's easy. You can do that in an afternoon, 10 minutes, uh, send out yeah. some tweets. If you have to go and show that's not true, you know, uh, the, the old joke is it's 10 times the energy. I don't think anyone's ever quantified it. But we do know that, for example, there is some metrics on this. We know corrective tweets. If a, if a viral tweet goes, mm. goes and it, it's wrong, the follow-up corrective usually gets fractions of the engagement yeah. the original thing got. Yeah. And it, that, that shows that we love sensationalistic stuff. We, yeah. we love it. We're really attracted to it. Yeah. And maybe the solution partly lies with us. To, yeah. it's, it's, it's the junk food of information. But yeah, yeah we love it. For know? sure. And, and with all the incentives from news organizations to make clickbaity headlines and then our, our laziness and skimming stuff and all that. But, you know, um, when, when talking about like debates, because uh, I came across something in your book that I've, I've kind of put floating around and you dive deep into it, but it's the, the just act, uh, the just asking questions, Uh, the jacking up, right? So here's, here's where I'm torn, right? Because again, like I, I'm a huge fan of all this stuff and being able to update beliefs. Um, I often say that updating my beliefs, like saved my life because I was a drug addict. Right. And I had Mm. to change my beliefs and just my beliefs about the world and everything like that. So it saved my life. So I'm always trying to update my beliefs. And sometimes I'll be talking with someone and I'm legitimately trying to understand where they're coming from. But there was one time I was having a conversation with someone and it seemed like, it seemed like they kind of felt backed in a corner and then they used that line on me. Right. So they treated me like I was just being some jerk troll when I'm literally trying to understand their point of view, where their evidence came from. So, so that's where like, I'm reading that section in your book. I'm like, well, where's the balance in that? Right. Because we want to have conversations. We want to be able to update our beliefs, but then someone can be like, oh, you're, oh, I'm the just asking questions, you know? So yeah. how do you find that balance? Or do you have like any telltale signs when someone's just not yeah. trying to? <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I've learned, I, 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 I have heuristics because obviously you can never get an 100% price. Mm-hmm. Um, but heuristics, little flags, I suppose, what I call red flags of, of, so a good faith engagement. I deal with vaccine hesitant parents an awful lot. And I, I, long before this pandemic, I was dealing with them. Mm-hmm. And they will ask questions which are obviously taken from conspiracy sites, but I have no problems answering them because I can tell from dealing with them, from having a human conversation that they're scared, that they're not trying to prove me wrong. They're asking about this. So you get a human television, you get that little bit. I mean, I spent that many, many years working in sales. Maybe you get a little bit of a feel for, you know, yeah. oh. but the thing, the red flags you look for is a little bit of beg- question begging. And I mean the rhetorical technique of question begging. And the classic example of that is when you hide an assertion in a question. And mm. the classic example that you always see students of rhetoric is, so when did you stop beating your wife? Now, of course, they, ca- they can't answer either way because you've already put the, it, and it's, yeah. it's called a begged question. One of the weird hills I'll die on is people say beg the question when they mean raise the question. It's a weird, the other one in the English language is factoid. Anything mm. with an oid ending means having the appearance of, but not being. So a factoid literally means something looks like a fact that isn't true. I'm going on a tangent. Factlet <laughs> is the term for a little fact. Um, but anyway, so working at the someone's intentions, you can usually do it pretty quickly. Now, if it's online, if someone comes to you super aggressive, 
and comes in and like, you know, isn't it true you're like farming a shill and all this stuff? You're like, well, if they're making a bunch of assertions, yeah, that's usually like, you're probably wasting your time, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in uh, I mean, I'm talking in the kind of online context here, but in human conversation, I think it's the same way you pick up if people are being genuine and, and, or, or, you know, and then that's, there's no shortcut for that, but there's certain things you'd know, you know, if someone asks you questions, like, how are you? You know exactly how much detail they want. Like, you know, they're yeah. being polite. Or, you know, if it's a friend going, how, how are you? Like, you know, and it's the same with questions about things. I, I'm never inclined to dismiss people's questions, right? Mm-hmm. But what I do sometimes do these days, because I don't have enough hours of the day, if someone comes on and I know that they're doing this aggressive, aggressive assertions dressed up as questions, mm-hmm. I would say, look, and the other thing I'd say is, okay, you're willing to accept this assertion, you know, and ask me to disprove it, but you're not willing to really show me why you accepted this assertion in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then you get that weird thing. It's a, it is a problem. It's particularly a problem online because people love, love doing that. But in yeah. real life, you, you'll know it yourself when you talk to people. And yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, it, it, there's a very fine line where you don't want to, you don't want to dismiss anyone for having questions because people need to have questions. Questions are good. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to the fact that if you answer their question and they continue to do this, you know, um, you know, oh, just asking more about you, and, and it, you feel like they're just trying to catch you out. Yeah. Then you're probably not in a good faith engagement and you probably have better use of your time. Yeah. You know, you're, you know, we're not, we can't save the world. We can just, um, well, collectively we can, but individualistically, we're just people, you know? That's, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I, you know, I, I can, I can get stubborn because I, I do believe that, you know, we can change and the world can change and things like that. And one thing that I hate is this idea that you can't have conversations online or on Twitter, especially, right? Like you just don't do it, right? I hear, I've read so many books, so like, don't even try to have, but I've actually had very legitimate conversations on Twitter with people who we disagree on something and then we end up following each other. We'll share different ideas and stuff because I'm a huge fan of following people I completely disagree with because they'll poke holes or they'll, they'll bring up things to make sure that I'm not falling into confirmation bias, right? They will so anyway. steal that. They will, they will steal man your argument. Yeah, they'll make, they'll yeah. make you have to be stronger in, or, or check your beliefs. That's not a bad thing at all. Yeah. No. And, and here's what's, uh, what I find frustrating is I think that since the internet has become so toxic, like the, the, um, instance I just gave you of someone saying, oh, you're just one of those just asking questions guys. I feel like there's been so much tribalism and polarization online that it catches people off guard and they just assume that anybody doing that is it, one it, of those it, people. Have you, so have, have you noticed that? Do you think that we need to at least attempt a little bit better to have this conversation, whether it's on Facebook with our crazy uncle or a stranger on Twitter, like, should we feel them out a little bit more? Should we try to bring them into a more human conversation? You know what I mean? I like, I like that, that thing you said there. I like that you're feeling things out before you commit to, and it, get, it gets, well, look, when I started out doing this and I had a relatively small, or still a relatively small account, but I could almost reply to everyone all the time. Mm. Nowadays, I just can't. Like I get too many messages. I get too many things. So I try to be as efficient about it as possible. And I, I, I'm, I'm a person, I've got good old Irish Catholic guilt. I am plagued <laughs> by the guilt that I haven't replied to people or that, you know, it, it, but it's, it can be overwhelming actually. But, um, yeah, you, you do feel the situation. I think you develop a knack for it. I'm, I agree with you hundred percent. I, yeah, I, I often follow people that I, I don't agree with, um, or I agree with on one thing, but I think they're wrong about everything else. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I found my position shifting in response to what they've said, or I find my own arguments being strengthened in response to what they've said. Mm -hmm. But a very important thing that I try not to do, unless the person is being an absolute ghoul about something, right? (laughs) I try not to personalize things too much for the sole fact that we do this thing where we, 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 we fundamentally decide people that sometimes disagree with us are malicious, they're bad. Uh, and they might do it to us as well. I think very few people, maybe a, a few percent of people are genuinely malicious or, or spiteful or dangerous. Yeah. Um, the majority of people are, can be misguided or can be confused or can be, you know, I can get them on an off day. I genuinely, maybe I'm too optimistic of people. I genuinely think <laughs> most people are not that. Uh, the internet, uh, it boosts the people that are nasty. That's true. 
But if you go in and, and you do listen and have conversations, they can be very productive. Yeah. But again, it's about choosing your battle. And also, I guess I'm, I'm calling into my own trap here because not everything's a battle. It's far better to have a conversation than a battle. Yeah. And I tell you, it's better for your mental health too. Because oh, for sure. It's a, it, it, fighting all the time is exhausting. It's exhausting yeah. and it's, it doesn't do much. You just look like an angry person. If you see two angry people shouting on the internet, you're not sure which one. You should go, but they're both lunatics. Yeah. That's what the silent majority are going to think. Um. So yeah, but conversations are important. Yeah. But when I, uh, no, I was just, I was just gonna say when I, when I stopped caring so much about being right, like I lived like the first like almost three decades of my life, just like I want to be right and I'll do whatever I can to be right. And when I kind of let go of that. And that switched it from a battle to a conversation, right? Where I go in and just don't care about the outcome. Like I, you know, I might have my perspective shifted a little bit like that, but like you said, there's some people who shift my perception towards their side a little bit. There's some people who strengthen my argument. I'm like, oh yeah, now I'm even more sure about this thing. But you know, uh, a book that I'm currently reading and I, I try to remember, uh, uh, parts of it all the time is uh, Roy Baumeister's book on evil, right? So he talks about the myth of pure evil, because we have this idea that there are people who are just purely malicious. They were born with this like essential kind of evil within them. But like you said, the Hannibal Lecter's of the world. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people are like misguided or they're, you know, falling into their own tribalism and all that. But, you know, um, with these conversations, uh, something else like, uh, so going to your, your, debate with Andrew Wakefield, right? Uh, uh, the yeah. famous, the famous guy who I don't know has killed millions probably, um, because of his vaccine, just insanity. So you talk about in the book, like not engaging debates where it's not, it, it's, it's a false balance, right? Uh, almost like uh, client, uh, or climate change denialists and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. here's, here's where I personally find the issue. And I've asked some other guests and I've never got a good answer. So maybe you do. So no pressure. So <laughs> it's, it, I find it difficult to know which topics are a false balance. Like where, where do we know? Like vaccines, climate change, ease, right? But the science is settled. Argument over evolution, for example. Like we don't need to keep doing that. But for example, I was just talking with someone right before we hopped on, and we were talking about. Uh, uh um these books on trans issues right so you have the famous people uh who have written like the the they're, they're being labeled as transphobics and stuff like that and we won't dive into that but they they talk about their stats and statistics right and this yeah. person said you should read this book and it's from the opposite side i'm like okay and the first review i read of the book said their stats are incorrect they're wrong right but the person who told me to read that book said, well, the people on the other side, their stats and statistics are wrong. So yeah. I'm sitting here like, well, we're, because I can't just do a Google search and there's like, like I could type in, okay, where's the scientific consensus on this and this and this and this. So yeah. to shorten that question, how can we easily find when it's a false balance or if the, the, the verdict is still out on certain aspects of different debates? That's where I get stuck. I think uh, there's two things here and I'll, I'll, I'll compartmentalize if I may. The first thing is when scientific debate is an interesting one, because what, what, why you're right, why are climate change and vaccination so easy to defend? Why, and this is not like they are, because the evidence is so overwhelming that climate change is real and caused by humans. And it's so overwhelming for hundreds of years that vaccination is a majorly life-saving endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. So in those situations, there's no real debate because you're arguing with facts. Um, there's loads of room for discussion about people's fears, about people's, you know, that's, that's really, that's really productive. And I, I, again, I love talking to vaccine hesitant parents because I, you know, they're all like, well, you know, it's good, but I'm afraid of this. I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is a great conversation we can have. Yeah. Now you go into something, particularly you've, you've mentioned something particularly explosive where I'm certainly not brave enough to put my foot in that landmine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I will say is this, um, there's sometimes a problem when you have people advocating different positions on something that is socially divisive and the evidence base maybe really isn't there. Yeah. And um, it becomes a, a war of rhetoric and it's harder than, I, I would say that scientific topics should be decided on the evidence base. That's where the false balance for me comes in. I'm like, look, but when the evidence is out there, discussion is probably still better because debate always implies there's a winning side. What you're often looking for is synthesis. 
you're also looking for, okay, look, can we arrive from two different points of view? Can we bash the evidence together and, 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 and find the consensus position? Um, we start off, I start off as an advocate of point X and you start off as point Y, but the evidence is a bit sketchy. Can we bash this out together and arrive at a point Z, which actually is probably not on either of our, again, this, mm-hmm. it's probably like you'll point out that parts of my position X are wrong. I go part of your AY are wrong. And then we go, okay, let's arrive at a new understanding, which is position Z. So yeah. if there's the evidence isn't there, you should, you, you can have divisive opinion. Sure. Take something like uh, I won't mention the trans issue because again I'm not brave enough. But let's talk something about like um, about whether lockdowns work or not, right? No, no, yeah. That's a very, very, and and you're the evidence is is the evidence. Of course, lockdowns will work in so much as they will definitely reduce transmission. But of course, you have to balance that with societal impacts and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So again, and the evidence, some of the evidence we need was missing, and anything transient new at, at early days of COVID, there was a lot we didn't know, and it was like, well, how do we make the best? You know, and, there, and it was already getting very tribalized with one side saying X, Y. The correct point is they should, the healthy scientific debate or in, is very much that we, is a, is a um, collaborative debate where it's like, hey, well, we think we have evidence for point X and you have evidence for point Y. Um, they seem to contradict a bit. Let's, let's look at that closer. Oh, actually it's point Z. You mm-hmm. know, that's a good debate. And, I, and that's the scientific parlance for debate, which is almost discussion. We yeah. shouldn't you we, but when it gets down to people having a position and they couldn't give a damn about the evidence, but they're going to argue it and they're going to tell you everyone else's evidence wrong. It's very, it's it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but again, when it comes to fault, to answer your original question, taking a little detour, but to yeah. answer that about um, it really becomes an issue of false balance when the evidence is overwhelming on one side. Yeah, and that's not to say everything else is up for grabs. Evidence doesn't have to be overwhelming. It can be mainly one way, but usually you're. If, if you're having a debate about something, it usually implies that there's a right and a wrong side of it. And that's often not the case in unsettled science or unsettled positions yeah. in society. You know, there probably isn't a, a consensus point emerged yet. So it would be better to have discussions than debates would be my argument. I wish people could have conversations. You take something as explosive as the issue you mentioned. I, I often feel when I see the, the rhetoric online from different sides, that almost, if you all sat in a room and had a conversation, you'd be able to address each other's fears and concerns mainly. And there's there's some people that will never be happy and maybe have bigoted opinions, whatever else. But like, sometimes it's like people talk across purposes because you get married to a position. Mm. And if it becomes a debate, there's no room for for really changing your position. Whereas in a conversation, there always is. You can always go, oh, you know, I see your point about that. Okay, cool. I'll adjust my position slightly. And no one feels they've lost. But mm-hmm. in a debate, someone loses and people yeah. don't like losing. So they'll stick there whether they should or not. Yeah. It, yeah. So like, for example, like I, I feel like with COVID, there are so many different moving pieces that it's, it's, it's become very complicated to talk about and people want to simplify it by just like taking their positions on the side. So like, for example, going to Andrew Wakefield, like in your book, I understand why that's a ridiculous debate. Vaccines yeah. do not cause autism. There's too much research out there showing that it's, it doesn't happen. There's, you know, signs of uh, children, um, you know, developing those symptoms around that age anyways. That's a topic that's very near and dear to me because I've, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but my, my son's mom, she worked with kids with autism, right? When she was pregnant, the parents were all uh, hitting her with this Andrew Wakefield stuff. This was, my son was born in 2008. Right. And I watched, uh, she had me watch that Andrew Wakefield documentary and stuff. It scared oh, yeah. the shit out of me. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and then once we did more research, we talked with our pediatrician and um, he actually got his vaccines kind of later than he showed up, but not too late. Um, but yeah, our pediatrician sold us on it because he, I, I, I wish I could remember how he worded it, but he just said like, if you knew like your kid was going to get the measles or something like that, would you still not vaccinate? And then he said, like, you don't know. So you might want to err on the side of caution, right? And that kind of that kind of sold us. And, you know, I I I'm curious, like, do you do you feel like when it comes to like the vaccine, like just talking about the COVID vaccine aspect, I'm always wondering if if this is more of an issue with uh, you know, I always think about tribalism, but also people suck at assessing risk, right? Like for me. I'm, I'm constantly doing risk analysis and maybe it's because I, I have anxiety, right? But I look at the numbers. I look at the numbers. I look at how many people have been vaccinated, how many people have died, 
from being vaccinated, right? And then I compare that to the number of people who have died without a vaccine, and I'm like, it's always a factor of ten or so different. Yeah, it's, yeah, it yeah, seems it's really simple. So, do you think people suck at risk analysis, or do you think it's more of tribalism making them not see the risk and happens uh, at all? I'll tell you something. It's a bit of both, and there's a reason that a chunk of the book was dedicated to numbers and statistics. Yeah, and it's because we do have loads of um, intrinsic inumeracy issues, right? It happens all the time. For example, people constantly overestimate their risk from rare events uh -huh. while underplaying. I remember, I mean, I do a lot of work in, you know, uh, cancer risks. And I remember someone um, lecturing me on using my phone so often because it, that, that could be a cancer risk. And they were lecturing me as they were smoking. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, firstly, it's not. But even if there was a hypothetical tiny risk, which there isn't, there's a very substantial risk with smoking. And again, they had normalized that risk. So and people mm -hmm. fly. People are afraid of flying, terrified of flying, but they don't realize that driving is statistically far more dangerous. You yep. know, there's things like that. Um, and that's partly because we're humans. And we do this thing, we have availability heuristic. We remember scary stories, we remember big claims. We remember the guy, we all know John Denver died in a goddamn plane crash and that sticks with us, right? But you don't remember the thousands of people that got run over or, or you know, fell asleep and crashed their cars. It, it, yeah. It's so mundane that we don't, we don't risk it. Scary stuff sticks in our grill. And, and that's part of the reason social media can be so goddamn toxic with that stuff. We, right. It's not representative of, of the reality. Um, so numbers are part of the reason, but numbers or abuse of numbers is it our demagogues best friends. I am constantly dealing at the moment with people say uh, anti-vaccine and you, you kind of hit on this already, but I'll just bring it back up. I'm dealing with anti-vaccine activists who will say stuff like they'll quote UK figures and they'll say two thirds of the people that have died over 50 in the last month uh, were vaccinated. How do you answer that science man? And I point <laughs> out that yeah, 95% of the population in the UK at that age group are fully vaccinated, which means that you have 5% of people contributing a third of debt, 33% of deaths. And when you do the maths, it's a factor of 10, a roughly a factor of 10 times more risk if you're unvaccinated. And I totally understand people getting bamboozled by that, but it's very easy for people with agendas to manipulate figures because we're actually bad at it. Most people, and I'm including my own students, by the way, um, if you can, you can give them numbers and they're less likely to question you if you give them numbers because yeah. maybe they don't They how is he getting there? I don't know how, and, and I sometimes test them. I give them like a, a statistic like that is definitely wrong. I go, Hey, no one's called me on that. You should have called me on that. And you shouldn't be afraid to call me. If I give you a number, I'll give you the context or it looks wrong. Ask about the context, you know? Yeah. Um, like even if you think about it, a hundred percent of all people who got Jenner's first vaccine in the year 1778 are dead now makes you think <laughs> but of course yeah. the context is specific to that you know yeah um so yes as part of the answer is that we're bad at numbers yeah and the other part is that there's the human element and there's people that will manipulate us so i think hopefully I've, i think i've covered most of the bases i'm sure we had another part of a rant there i have thought about it, and then i said yeah. no in it's, the interest uh, of not dominating conversation my ranting you know i think i think i'd speak for a lot of people because as much as like i'm i'm a I'm a human behavior and psychology guy. That's my my thing. Math and numbers just confuse the hell out of me. And when I force myself to read books, like uh, I had Tim Harfer on here uh, talking about his book about numbers and everything. And you know, um, for me, though, you know, my heuristic is just to kind of question certain things whenever I see numbers, right? Sample sizes and things like that. And because. Like you said, like they don't like, uh, you know, when you get numbers, I, I'm not going to go through all of your math and see how you got there and everything. But it's interesting, too, because even just learning about how uh, visual graphs can be manipulated. Oh, like, yeah. Like just that is something that I keep an eye out for. I'm like, hey, why is this axis? Why are these numbers changing on this axis and and stuff like that? Those are like there, there's these small things where I they're red flags for me where I could be like, OK, now I need to look into this a little bit more. Do you have any kind of hacks with people who aren't numbers people to kind of be skeptical of numbers they're coming across? Do you know, I, I don't want to make arguments from authority, but one really quick thing that I always do as a heuristic and a heuristic is a shortcut. It doesn't mean it's always right. Yeah. But it, again, it's a good, it, it's a good initial test to put through it. And then and one of the things I do is when people show me information or give me a number, right? I say, okay, where'd that come from? Yeah. And the reason I ask, where did that come from? 
is if it came from the CDC, that's probably pretty reliable. If it came from my racist uncle's Facebook page, um, <laughs> and I know his political opinions, and uh, it's I'm, I'm I'm probably less like inclined to call that a reliable source, right? And that's uh, I'm, and I could you could be accused of arrogant authority there, but I don't think that's it. I think it's information hygiene. The first thing I want to know is why are you telling me this? And something I, I haven't put in the book, but it's you know, go in the next one. Information is never neutral. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a people that, oh, I'm just giving you facts. Yeah, but for example, the one I, I read about in the book, but I love one of my favorite uh, things. And I used to, when I, I used to teach in secondary school, uh, after I got my PhD, uh, I guess a high school is what they, you guys yeah. would call them. And I was teaching, um, you know, kids 15 to, to 17 maths and science and science. And one of the things I used to do, I used to make a class discussion. And I tell them about this molecule, dihydrogen monoxide, right? And I go, look, this, it's, it, it, it kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. It's highly toxic in big concentrations. It's so corrosive, it can rust metal. It's in acid rain. It's in tumors. It's, it's in our food, right? It's actually, it's all around. And, and we have a, a class discussion. Should we ban this chemical, right? I, I use it with the younger kids, but it, it works with the older kids too. And most of them will vote to ban this terrible thing, right? And then I point out that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O is water. Yeah. Everything I have told them about water is correct, but I've taken it entirely out of context. Yeah. And I haven't presented essential and essential information that they would, you know, and we have to be very wary of that because people can even give us facts, but take them out of context. And the actual term for that, which is a term I love, is malinformation. Mm. They're literally from bad information. It is, you know, you, you know, it is the framing of something as dangerous by taking it out of context or divorcing it from context. Mm-hmm. It's to make something or someone look bad. Yeah. And um, there was a recent example on the BMJ, but I won't, I won't, I won't go on that rant just yet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so absolutely. And, and the first thing that is the highest was a hack is ask for information. Where did you get it from? And context. Yeah. So if someone gives you a factor figure, you go, okay, but what is that relative to? Um, you know, what are you comparing that to? What population is that drawing? There, it sounds very, um, you know, boring, this list of questions, but you'll often find that a figure that looks fantastical and scary, maybe isn't that big a deal in context. Yeah. Uh, or maybe something that seems mundane actually is shocking when you put it in context. So yeah. you need the context and you also need the source. Because if, yeah. if, and source is the big one, source could very, very quick because every information is never neutral. If Fox News are telling you one thing, it's because they want, you know, they're, yeah. they're not going to run a positive piece on immigrants, are they? You know, yeah. whereabouts, yeah. you know, the, the, the statistics office of the United States government will probably be quite neutral on it and will probably give you more accurate information in context. Yeah. And it's just asking, it can, that's not to say that bad actors can't sometimes have good information. It is to say that try to find a neutral source to verify the figure you've been given rather than just accept it or, mm-hmm. or the information because you'll often find that partisan sources have their own reason for twisting things a certain way. Yeah, and I, I don't know, like you mentioned that you you have a little bit of a background in sales. Like I have some background in sales and marketing too. And I've met great salespeople. I've met terrible salespeople. We're only for the money. But something I try to teach my son and teach others is whatever information you're coming across, just ask yourself one quick, simple question. Is there anybody benefiting? from giving me this information or framing yep. it in a certain way. Like you ask that like real quick, like, uh, you know, uh, for example, you know, one of the famous cases is the tobacco industry and just, just fostering doubt, right? Like if, if they do it, and that's why there's so many different ways that they cover up who's running the research and the studies It's something I learned about pharmaceuticals and who's doing the testing and who's checking it and all these things. Right now we're watching this new show on Hulu because uh, my drug of choice was prescription opioids and the show on Hulu is dope sick. And it's talking it's about. It's all the It's all the Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Purdue Pharma. That, that was, I've just read uh, Gerald Posner's book on it. Um, on, I think it's just called Pharma. But yeah. it's abs- it's absolutely damning, and yeah. and it's also it's interesting. You you suffered that immensely. You you lived that reality, uh, and the reason why that gripped America in such a way that it d- it didn't grip Europe, for example, is the power of our regulators here. Um, the for, and in, in Gerald Postle, it's really interesting the amount of um shenanigans that went on mm-hmm. to kind of hobble. And the FDA did a really good job, but they were hobbled at every opportunity by the practices that were already set up. Yep. Partly in America because of the 
the love of the free market, you might say. Um, because it is a great case study on it, there, there is problems in, in Europe, but nothing on the scale of what America has been affected by. Even the fact that you have direct to consumer drug advertising. Exactly. That's what that doctors can be, lo- patients can lobby their doctors and doctors can be wined and dined to, to pick these unnecessary yeah. prescriptions. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just, it's a weird thing, isn't it? It's yeah. I'm, I'm watch I'm watching this show because, uh, you know, it's something that's, that's known that, you know, these pharmaceutical reps go and like, you're watching these, you know, obviously it's, it's, uh, you know, made for TV and they're dramatizing it a little bit, but it's true. Like these drug reps go to these doctors and I'm, I'm just like, they damn well do. Yeah. And I'm like, these doctors, they have PhDs. Like they went to school for so long, like, and they haven't been taught to question like, Hey, what's the motive of this guy giving me information on the drug that he clearly makes money from? Like, I, you know, maybe again, maybe it's the background in sales, but I'm like, how does this guy make his money? Like yeah. if he, he makes a commission money, on this, yeah. yeah. Like, exactly. is he, you know, if somebody's selling me something, are they ever going to tell me that a competitor's product is better and things like that? Like uh, an ethical salesman might, but yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. a lot of them, they're, they're not going to. And, and I think it's important to think about that with politicians and, you know, does this help their agenda and what they're trying to do? If they're giving me X amount of information, I just think, you know, we have to have that kind of helping skepticism because there are good actors but there are bad actors, you know? Absolutely. And you know, I sometimes I'm asked like people to roll their eyes and say, oh, you're dealing with conspiracy theorists again, which I do a lot of my job. <laughs> I'm like, but I go, but you've got to understand something. I said, like a lot of these people who fall victim to conspiracy theories, they have genuine grounds for grievances and mistrust. Mm-hmm. I said, and look, I said, and you could take the, the, the Purdue Pharma Sackler thing as a classic yep. example. No. Oh. Doctors should be getting kickbacks for writing prescriptions. And um, mm-hmm. it is, it is, I would say, almost uniquely an American thing, but it, it's shocking that it's allowed to happen. Yeah. I totally understand when I deal with patients who are scared of pharmaceuticals and that when I deal with, with people who are terror or very distrustful of the pharmaceutical industry, I'm the first person to go, I damn well, I feel you. Yep. A huge part of my research at the moment is meta research. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of research mm-hmm. on the quality and trustworthiness and research integrity of published research mm. and shockingly poor. And that now yeah. that's not usually due to corruption. That's usually due to the fact, but there's a perverse incentive as a scientist, my career can only progress if I keep publishing scientific articles. And ideally, if I keep finding new and novel, wonderful things, right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is always going to be incentive to massage your results until something looks fantastic when maybe it was only so, so, you know, yeah. or maybe it did nothing. And you just went, well, if I look at the group with a squint that I didn't drop one number, you know, and this, this happens. And I would be an advocate of, of pretty radical transparency about stuff, mm-hmm. but we have this result driven thing where, you know, you got to get the guy that gets the results and I need people. The process is important, right? Yeah. It's like in science, at least, and possibly other things we sometimes, um, you know, the guy who puts the last brick on the house, he gets the, he gets the Nobel prize for building the house. Like, you know, that lots of people were involved in bits and maybe some people dug a trench and found out we couldn't build it there. All of that was vital. Yeah. And we still have these incentives. And like, like the, the pharmaceutical incentives, there's still an incentive in scientific publishing, which I'd like to see gone, where unless you're doing something novel and significant and all this fancy stuff, it, it's, wor- it's considered worthless when in fact it's not. Knowing yeah. a drug doesn't work is every bit as valuable as knowing that it does work. Oh yeah. yeah one of them is far more likely to get published. So I... Very much an advocate. So people say to me, I don't trust science or I don't trust the pharmaceutical industry. I can't blame them. Yeah. And I would say, well, absolutely. And yeah. um, uh, however, as Ben Goldacre says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said, yeah, pointing out that there's problems with the pharmaceutical industry um, is fine. But, people, but using that to assume that it's all, it's like saying you notice problems with the aviation industry, therefore magic carpets work. No, there, there, there is that it's it's wrong there's things yeah. that are really wrong and that are not okay but that doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater there's a lot of really good stuff going on even look at the invention of covid vaccines look how quickly that happened yeah yeah that's what happens when good science is just allowed do its things yeah. <laughs> you know yeah when i when i read books on you know uh polarization and people who specialize in like communication and the bridging uh bridging the divide and everything like that one of the common things that they say is you know find common ground with the person and that's where that's where I find uh, a little bit of uh, more ease talking with vaccine skeptics instead because of my opioid 
uh, abuse background because I'm like, hey, I get why you don't trust big pharma. Like, like you said, people have a lot of reasons not to trust pharmaceuticals, not to trust the government and everything like that. And that's when I get really pissed off at the government and things like that. It's like, listen, if you guys lie to everybody or massage information or leave out facts, they're people, not going to trust you. Yeah, like you are you are creating a breeding ground yeah. of conspiracy theorists 100%. when the when the truth comes out. But um, you know, with a little bit more of your time, speaking of politics and things like this, whenever I have someone on here who talks about some of these things and looking at numbers and everything, I have to ask you, okay? Because I I do not trust a single poll. No matter what poll yeah. I come across, I don't trust a single one. I I personally feel that it is insane, right? To look at a poll and then look at the sample size, for example, just talking about politics, right? And they're like, sample size, 1,200 people, 2,000 people. And they're like, we did randomize, you know, different genders, different ages, different backgrounds and everything. And they're like, so 80% of Americans believe this. And I'm just like, you can't take 2,000 people and get a rough idea of a, a population of over 300 million. Like that is a drop in the bucket. And there's so many different ways, and especially especially after learning that people will even lie in an anonymous survey. Like, so anyways, I don't you're trust the, any- you're, You just mentioned the, the Kaiser family survey on 80% of Americans being, you know, doubtful because, yeah, I read that today. So, yeah, so yeah. I, don't, I don't trust any polls. So let me ask you, should we ever trust polls? Am I just too skeptical of these? Am I a conspiracy theorist in that aspect? Like, I just don't see the, the evidence that pollings are it's anywhere. It's getting harder accurate. to poll. It's getting really? harder to poll for a few reasons, right? So, um, and I wrote about one 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 uh, story in the book. I talk about ma- making predictions uh, being really hard, and it was about the uh, the second Ro- Roosevelt, and um, and like when he was considered, he was already in office, but you know he was going up against this guy, and uh, the, the Literary Digest did this massive at the time yeah. poll in America, and they came back and they said, "Yeah, he's going to lose, going to lose by," and actually he won by a landslide, and the reason why. Is that because their their subscribers, who they'd mainly polled, and people on the automobile register, they had polled richer people. Yeah, they polled them, and richer people were were more likely to be against Roosevelt's, you know, uh, New Deal kind of stuff. So they had totally got misleading. So again, and there was Gallup at the time was got the correct result because he yeah. got a more cross sectional poll. If you can get a very good cross sectional sample of people, polling is fine. However, and this is where it gets harder. <laughs> Um, now we have a lot more, um, echo chambers. We have a lot more hotbed. It, it, it's vi- our, our samples are not well mixed anymore. They're very non-homogenous. They're all over the place. Um, you'd need to have like an almost perfect methodology to get anything really accurate. You can do on mass polls with big enough samples and you can probably get results, but I'd be very cautious of over extrapolating from them because yeah. Like I, you want to point out, I was in I was in Florida in 2016 when Trump was elected, <laughs> and I remember the polls before then didn't think that was likely. But again, people don't tell. And we also know this is a bigger problem, particularly on what are considered divisive issues. Uh, people will be disinclined to, especially in a phone interview, mm-hmm. tell the truth. There's ways of getting around that. Uh, there was a great I can't remember what this, but I remember a great one about. Um, trying to work out how many American GIs in, visit, in Vietnam were visiting prostitutes so they could work out penicillin doses. And they basically told them to flip a coin. And if it came up as heads, they wrote down yes. And if it came up as, um, you know, tails to write down the honest answer. And they were able to statistically work out how many of them at chance would have been. So that, that was a clever mm. way of getting out. So there was no consequence for you being caught out because they were afraid they might be caught out and it wasn't that anonymous or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's loads of corrective techniques you can do to improve your sampling. A lot of cases won't do them because it's too much effort. And also phone interviews are still done. And honestly, I think your cross-section of people that own a phone, and I mean a landline, because people usually still use landlines. I don't, I don't, I haven't had a landline in years. I have one. I, I, it's disconnected. It's just, it's, it's decorative, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a problem. And I think that polling companies, the smart ones are going to have to think a lot more about it because polling is important. Yeah. But. You know, if, if the methodology is weak and here, look, that's the thing about, oh, um, it's not just about polling, it's science as well. The methodology is weak. The results are always going to be suspect. Yeah. And that's, 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 that's the crux of it, isn't it? So you're not a total cynic to distrust polling. <laughs> I mean, it, 
it just, you need to ask a lot of questions of methodology and questions that a lot of companies maybe won't be forthcoming in answering. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I just look at it kind of like horoscopes. I'm like, oh, that's a fun thing, but I, I don't fully trust it. But yeah, like I could see like, you know, the proper places. I've talked to a few people uh, about some places that are a little bit more trustworthy than others because they're, you know, uh, known for doing, you know, uh, decent sample sizes and checking stuff and all that. Uh, but since, since I have time for one more quick question, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my favorite part about your book and this will help round it out because everybody needs to go buy it. But my favorite part, I've never seen anybody finally call out Oprah freaking Winfrey the way you did. <laughs> like, I feel like, okay, so uh, I won't, I won't put her in this. I, I almost, I almost compared her to Andrew Wakefield, but I won't do that. But she hosts so many pseudoscientific, ridiculous people. And she has one of the most, just one of the biggest brands on earth. So I guess my final question for you, because like, okay, we're talking about like the secret, right? We're talking about uh, oh, yeah, uh, just yeah. so many others. How do we reach Oprah's millions and millions and millions of, of people out there to be like, hey, she's not exactly pushing the best scientific the best evidence. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you, have you ever thought about how we reach those people and kind of sway them to understand, to be skeptical of Oprah and who she platforms like Dr. Friggin Oz, who has oh, been yeah. like, like last week tonight did an entire episode on just his garbage that he's done. And so how do we I reach? think I consulted on that episode actually oh, really? last week. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I was, I, here's the thing. Oprah, Oprah kind of breaks my heart. Because there's so many good and admirable qualities that she has. She's a woman yeah. of color who's come up through very hard conditions, has overcome a lot of bad stuff. But that, again, you know, I, I mean, the obvious solution, Chris, is that she puts my book on her book club because then everyone will read it. But I, yeah. I suspect, <laughs> given I've written, that won't happen. Yeah. But I, I'm not, a, I can't even heard the first. David Gorski, uh, an oncologist I'm a big fan of, he, he wrote, was writing about Oprah a good few years ago as well. So, Again, this is admiration because she's done some very important things. Yeah. But when it comes to health advice, she has been absolutely dreadful. She has platformed people like Christine Northup, who, by the way, has now become a, an infamous figure during the pandemic for spreading disinformation. She's put things on, I like The Secret. Funny story, my book in the UK shares a publisher with The Secret, and they were originally really, really unhappy with me taking pot shots. <laughs> and one of their, still one of their best-selling books. Yeah. It's still in the yeah. top... Like it, it, it's, it's, and it literally, it is, it is garbage, but, yeah. um, it's very middle-class garbage and that sells well, <laughs> but like, yeah. So Oprah's, how do you reach that audience? Well, firstly, I'd love to, I'd love to have a drink with Oprah, sit down and chat and say, look, you have this amazing platform and this amazing voice. Mm -hmm. You just need to be a tiny bit more skeptical because even though you mean well, and I think she does mean well, the people that are coming on are hoodwinking you and ultimately they're imperiling the health of your audience. Yeah. Because the thing about the road to hell is it is paved with good intentions to borrow another old yeah. adage, right? I don't think there's anything malicious about our book. But yeah. I think being incredibly naive about the people that you are giving a pedestal to, and she's such a trusted voice that she does give a pedestal to. So when her yeah. audience, or people maybe, I'd love to talk to Oprah one day. If she's listening, she'd want a drink. <laughs> yeah, she's a, a subscriber to the podcast by chance. Yeah, yeah, I get you. That would, but, but, but the other thing I'd say is like, look, People, it's a good indication that even very smart, accomplished people can fall victim to nonsense. Yeah. And that is important to realize. And also, I would say this, to, if I was speaking to Oprah, her words, there is no shame in being wrong. I think we need to get rid of this. I change my mind all the time when better evidence comes in. And initially, it's hard because you have your pride is all tied up in it and your identity is, and yeah. it's called identity protective cognition, the idea that we become our ideas um, and we get very defensive of them. We should be so promiscuous with our ideas and literally trade them out when they are no longer fit for purpose. When someone gives us a better one, we're like, oh yeah, you know what? I was wrong about that. Yeah. We still feel ashamed with it. We call politicians who change their mind. We go, oh, you flip-flopped or, you yeah. know. No, changing someone's mind on the basis of evidence is the most virtuous thing you can do. The only shame is when you refuse to change your mind when the evidence dictates you should. Yeah. So people often get defensive if you point out, oh, that's actually garbage. And like, well, I believe that. I'm like, Okay. So you say, look, that's okay. But willingness to, to change your mind is important. So I was talking to an Oprah fan who'd heard something on Oprah's show. I'd say, look, big, big props to Oprah. She's a, she's an amazing person. She's wrong on this. And whether she means to or not, that information is harmful because it's not true. 
Yeah. And because it could make people do, and we and show evidence that people can do very foolish things. As I wrote about in the book a little bit, if, yeah. if they follow this to its, its illogical conclusion. So, you know, a little bit, it shows you that even very clever people can be yeah. Before victim I, yeah, I, I just, I, I try to remember, and I do have, you know, I, I have authors who have been on who listen to the podcast and stuff, and just something I try to tell other people who of influence who have a decent sized following is just to be mindful of who you promote, who you share, make sure that they're not just agreeing with you because, you know, like you said, with Oprah, I think she has great intentions. I think she's helped a lot of people. She has a good heart and everything, but the problem is is she's such a trusted figure that when she platforms somebody like Dr. Oz, for example, like has his own, approval. Yeah, yeah. He has his own show. Now he's a multimillionaire and everything like that. Just from that, you know, yeah, that, that, that I, I wasn't, I wasn't did. particularly nice about him in the book. I, in yeah. fact, I, I think I reserved more ire for him because you know what? He is a medical professional. He should know damn well better. Yeah. You know, Oprah's mm -hmm. a lifestyle journalist and, and yes, she should. And remember these people hire researchers. Like, I mean. I've done, I've done some research consulting for, for John Oliver's show, and they have excellent researchers who can get in contact with anyone. If you're Oprah's research team, you oh, can get yeah. in contact with anyone mm -hmm. in the world, okay? Yeah. So they call me anytime they want. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but the thing is, it's that, it, that, that's, that is a responsibility, I think, that people that have large platforms should always remember. You can't just put your hands in the air and go, well, you know, it's not our place to fact check. It's not our place. It kind of is. Yeah. Because you, you, are, you are letting a veneer of legitimacy to it. And you can't just say, well, well, no, we're just, we're just showing this thing that someone is saying, because again, information is never neutral. You are inadvertently promoting it or, or sometimes very yeah. inadvertently promoting it. And yeah. you're right. That comes with responsibilities like Spider-Man, great power, great responsibilities. Yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it was yeah. Uncle Ben, but like, you know, I was trying to be hip with the kids, but I'm obviously, I'm the <laughs> yeah. oldest 36 year old you'll ever meet. I'll tell you. Yeah. No, hey, I'm 36 years old too. And that hit the end. The new Spider-Man's coming out. But yeah, David, and, and thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, I'm going to give you pleasure. One, let me give you one last compliment before we leave. You're, uh, I, I read your book right after reading Stephen Pinker's book. Pinker's was good. I enjoyed yours a lot more. I think it took an interesting take and covered some good topics. So I really I, appreciate that. And, yeah. and, and, and you know what? I, I'm really flattered to hear that. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, yeah. that's, that's my praise. So I'll definitely, definitely take that. So, so is for everybody listening and they, they want to pick up a copy of the book, is it available everywhere? Like in all countries or, or there going to be another release? It looks like it's both UK and United States. Is yeah, yeah. So if you live in if you live in the United States or North America or um, or Canada or anywhere like that, yeah, it's called good thinking. I'm looking at the subtitle there. Why flawed logic puts us all at risk and how critical thinking can save the world. And you can get it pretty much uh, where all good books are sold and maybe where bad books are sold as well. <laughs> uh, in Europe, it's called the Irrational Eight. It's called something else. I think in Japanese, there's a really like I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume most of our listeners are are, are Anglo Anglophones, so yeah. we're all speaking a version of English, either with use or without use. The big, <laughs> big difference in American and British English, right? Um, uh, yeah, and you get you'll find me on social media at uh, Twitter at drg1985 or Instagram David underscore Robert underscore Grimes, and my website is davidrobertgrimes.com. Not very imaginative, but you'll find me. And uh, hopefully people enjoy. And if they have any questions, queries, comments, you know, I'm usually around. As long as I can see their message, I don't feel too guilty about not being able to get back all the time. <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. Awesome. I'll link all that stuff in the description below. Oh, that yeah. sounds great. That David, sounds great. Thank this you. has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do it again. When that next book comes out, we'll be doing this again. I definitely will. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So anytime, just, just hit me up. You know how bad I am at emails, but I will always get back eventually. I'm <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. I told you, I told you, he is a fun, charismatic guy, and I really enjoyed talking with him. Sometimes, uh, you know, when you have a conversation with uh, a physicist, you don't know if it'll be like dull and boring. Like when I learned that David has like a background, you know, and like he was like a theater kid and, you know, and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, okay. No wonder why you're so charismatic and personable and all that. So it was really, Really fun talking with him. And and you get some of his personality in his book, Good Thinking. And I can't stress it enough. I cannot stress it enough. I read dozens and dozens of these books. Um, some of you know, like with the amount of books that I read, I always try to keep one in the rotation, like this book from David, that reminds me of all the different cognitive errors that we make, just so they stay fresh in my mind. So no matter what issues I'm dealing with or challenges or problems that I'm coming across, whether it's, you know, in my 
in my personal life, in my work life, all the news and data that we get flooded with, all these things. When I have a book like David's in my rotation, it reminds me to take a step back, get into my system two thinking, and kind of assess these situations in a much better way. So I'm not running around doing a lot of dumb stuff. So I really, really hope you head down to the description, grab a copy of Good Thinking. Uh, David's book, it, it's great. Like I said, I think it's better than Stephen Pinker's. So do with that what you will, but I really, really suggest that you grab a copy of this book and make sure you're following David over on Twitter. All right. But before I let you go, make sure you're following me as well over on Instagram and Twitter. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following it, you're subscribed to it, no matter what platform you're listening on. And an absolutely free way to help support the podcast is if you enjoyed this conversation with David and you think some people who follow you on you know, Instagram or Twitter may enjoy it, they might learn something, share this episode. When you share this episode or any episode that you like, it really helps out a ton. And it also helps out if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for this podcast. The algorithms loves this stuff. It helps spread the word and I really, really appreciate it. But some other ways to help support the podcast, as I mentioned, head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. If you become a paid subscriber, $5 a month or $50 for the year, what a bargain. I know, I know. You'll get all of these episodes early. All right. I record these things weeks in advance. So you'll have plenty of new episodes before anybody else hears them. So that's pretty sweet. All right. And another way to support the podcast, uh, if you're like me and, you know, want to improve your mental health, there's an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. This is a therapy service that I've personally used and I cannot vouch for it enough. I've had friends and family members use BetterHelp as well. And yeah, it's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist and it helped me out a ton during a really difficult time that I was going through back in 2019. So if you want to check it out down in the description, BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. So another huge, huge thank you to David for taking the time to come on the podcast. Don't forget to grab a copy of his book. And yeah, for all of you, have an amazing rest of your day. I might have one more episode for you this week. If not, I will have a bonus episode for you this Sunday. All right. So stay tuned. But yeah, have a good one and I'll see you next time.